This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. All right, here's what we're going to do today. First of all, um, we're going to introduce you to apologetics. We're going to tell you what apologetics is. And I hope I can do that in a relatively short period of time. Very quickly today, you will realize that the central idea around which this course revolves is the idea of a worldview. In fact, I think this concept is so important to doing certain things properly that what I'm going to try and do is give you a sample message, no longer than 30 minutes, I hope, in which uh, I give you an example of how any of you could convey this same important information to any group of, to any group of people, young people in high school, uh, people in a worship service, uh, although I must admit I've never given this particular message in a Sunday morning worship service. This Sunday will be the first time that I try that, and I'll tell you next week <laughs> if, it, if it worked. This is a very important thing to do, but it can be a very difficult and tricky thing to do. You know it's difficult when people in the back of the church begin to put their heads down on the pew and begin to snore, all right? But it's important, and so we're going to try it. Well, first of all, what is this course about, and what in the world is apologetics? The word comes from a Greek word, apologia, which means defense. And so this is a course that is concerned with defending the Christian faith against arguments and attacks that weaken and undermine, uh, undermine personal faith. Lots of people are not Christians, not because they've never heard the gospel, they are not Christians because somewhere along the way they have picked up certain arguments, certain ideas, certain convictions that serve as obstacles or roadblocks to their coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So it's important that every Christian have some training in how to remove those roadblocks. Now, apologetics is not unique to Christianity. Actually, a person can be an apologist for anything. There are people in the world who are apologists for the environment, who are apologists for aerobics, not one of my favorite, <laughs> not one of my favorite causes. Um, 
So when a person does apologetics, he's not doing something that is uniquely or exclusively religious. He is simply doing something that people do every day in all areas of life, but we're doing it with respect with regard to the Christian faith. Now, chapter one of your book makes two additional points about apologetics that I want to quickly cover here. It, first of all, makes a distinction between negative and positive apologetics. When we do negative apologetics, it's like playing defense in football. In negative apologetics, somebody else is raising the challenge and you are trying to meet the challenge. You are trying to answer the objection. When people do positive apologetics, then they are engaged in, try in persuading other people about the truth of the Christian faith. When you do positive apologetics, you are playing offense. When you do negative apologetics, you are playing defense. As the course proceeds, you'll see me doing both things. There will be days when I'll be trying to diffuse certain arguments or objections. There will be other days when I am on the attack and I'm trying to, I'm trying to score points with somebody else. Positive apologetics is much harder to do well than negative apologetics. And I think you'll see that very quickly. It is much easier to show that somebody else's argument falls short of adequacy than it is for you to prove something to somebody else, whatever the word prove happens to mean. In fact, I quote somebody in, in chapter one, I think it's my friend George Mavrodes, who teaches at the University of Michigan, who says that positive apologetics can be so difficult that some people won't even try it. They won't even attempt it. That's too bad. Uh, you shouldn't stop doing something just because it's difficult. Now, there is one other important point in chapter one, and it concerns what we call the burden of proof. If you're especially clever as you go through life, maybe you'll be lucky enough never to be stuck with the burden of proof. Maybe you'll be lucky enough as you go through life to always encounter people who are dumb enough to assume the burden of proof upon themselves. Thank, <laughs> thank the Lord when that happens, all right? The burden of proof means that the responsibility of making the case in this particular issue falls on your shoulders. It is always easier to engage in an argument when the burden of proof is on the other person. Because... If you don't have the burden of proof, all you have to do is show that the argument that you've heard thus far is, is inadequate, is unsatisfactory. In a court of law, the burden of proof always rests 
where? It always rests with the prosecution. The state must prove beyond a shadow of a doubt or beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is guilty. There is a, there is a school of thought in philosophy that illustrates what your textbook calls the presumption of atheism. And I give you some quotations in chapter one from some philosophers who, some philosophers who represent this position. I'll give, you, I'll give you the name of one of these philosophers, Antony Flew. Antony Flew is one of a few proponents of what we call the presumption of atheism. And here's what that is. This is the view that says that in any argument between a believer and a non-believer, the burden of proof is always on the Christian. The unbeliever never has the burden of proof. What a neat trick that is if you let people like Ant Antony Flew get away with that. Look, this guy has practically won the argument before it started because no matter what the point of contention is, from that moment on, you're the person who's got to prove it. And who do you have to prove it to but a person who, who holds an alien worldview, a person who rejects out of hand all of the presuppositions that are going to be central and uh, crucial to your position. Now, <clears throat> what I contend in Chapter 1 is this. The presumption of atheism is a clever bit of academic imperialism. And we shouldn't let people get away with it. What we should do is say, wait a minute. I don't buy this business where I always have the burden of proof. Let's, let's play on a level playing field. Let's both start from the 50-yard line, and let's both recognize that at various points, different different sides are going to have the burden of proof. There will be times when I will accept the burden of proof. And I'll tell you when a Christian should be willing to do it. When you are doing positive apologetics, the burden of proof should rest on you. Unless you're dealing with someone who's so <laughs> flaky that he doesn't recognize it. Okay, you know... If you ever deal with someone who always wants the burden of proof, fine. But I will accept the burden of proof when I am doing positive apologetics, when I have assumed the task of proving something to somebody else. But when I'm doing negative apologetics, don't you dump the burden of proof on me. It's yours. Because you're the person who is then trying to make a point or establish something, and you've got the burden of proof. Understanding the concept of worldviews is one of the most important things we can do to help people think straight. The second purpose of this message is to help people understand that Christianity is a worldview. See, too many people think of Christianity in its exclusively salvational dimension, that this is uh, a collection of experiences that this has to do exclusively with my salvation. 
And the, the, the truth is that uh, that's correct, Christianity is that, but it is far more than that. It is an all-encompassing, systematic view of life and reality as a whole. The third purpose of this presentation is to try and help people come to a better understanding of their own worldview. Because as I'll explain, everybody has a worldview, but not everybody recognizes that, and even fewer people have any idea what their own worldview is. People can't get straight in their thinking unless they know what their own worldview is and how far or how close it may be from the truth. And then the fourth objective of this presentation is to help people understand the superiority of Christianity to competing systems. So I'm going to give you this particular presentation. I hope it will be helpful to you. I hope that some of you will leave here saying, hey, I know audiences that I can share that with. I know audiences that will be helped through my presentation of that, college students, church groups, whatever. And, um, but keep in mind, keep this in mind. Don't ever, don't ever keep any audience, any audience, more than 30 minutes, all right? 30 minutes ought to be the maximum. Now, today may be an exception, but let's start. <laughs> let's start. I'm going to take as my text Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And then you know how the rest of the text goes, or you can, because you're going to look it up and read it for yourself. Paul begins to identify the various pieces of armor, both defensive and offensive, that are available to the Christian. Now, here's what I want to, here's what I want to introduce you two in this particular passage. Have you ever paused and asked why Paul has so much to say about armor in this particular text? Well, the answer ought to be obvious. Christians need armor because they are combatants in a war, in a battle. But now we have a little problem. Most Christians are so preoccupied with higher things or spiritual things that even on those rare occasions when it occurs to them that the Christian life involves them in some kind of warfare, they tend to think of that warfare only in spiritual terms or moral terms. Now, I have no desire to minimize the importance of spiritual and moral conflict. I want you, of course, to be concerned with higher things, with spiritual things. But we need to realize that the battle that we are engaged in, the warfare that we are part of, has to do with things that are more than spiritual and moral. It has to do as well with a battle in the world of ideas. Now, from its inception, the Christian church has been involved in battles that involve ideas, theories, systems of thought, presuppositions and arguments. Signs of battles like that are apparent throughout the New Testament. They're apparent throughout the history of the church. In fact, 
the major reason why all of America's mainline denominations, those would be the large Protestant denominations that are connected with the World Council of Churches, the major reason why all of those mainline denominations and their seminaries and their colleges have been lost to unbelief is because Christians lost the battle in the world of ideas in the period of time after the Civil War. Actually, very few people were ever involved in that battle in the world of ideas. Most people simply watched or ignored, sat passively by while their denominations apostatized. For too many of us, our thinking about the Christian faith is scattergunned and scatterbrained. But Christianity is more than a haphazard assortment of theological odds and ends. It is, all, it is a comprehensive, systematic view of life and the world as a whole. No Christian can really be effective in the arena of ideas until he or she has been trained to think in worldview terms. But then that brings us to the obvious question. What is a worldview? Well, before I give you a definition, recognize that whatever it is, Every mature, rational human being has one. Every mature, rational human being has one. The problem is that few people have any idea what their worldview is, or even that they do have one. Achieving awareness of this thing we call a worldview is one of the most important things we can do to enhance self-understanding. Grasping the worldview of others is an essential step in understanding what makes other people tick. Giving our children a worldview is one of the most important things that parents can do. It is one of the unique advantages that homeschooling parents can have, or that parents who are willing to make the sacrifices of sending their children to Christian schools. You give your kids a map of life, an overarching worldview that is faithful to Scripture and faithful to biblical truth. Now, here's my definition. Put in its simplest terms, a worldview is simply a set of beliefs about the most important issues in life. That's it. A worldview is a set of beliefs about the most important issues in life. But it's not just enough that you have beliefs. These beliefs must fit together. They must cohere. They must stick together in some way. So we're talking about a system. Now, a fancy term, and I'm not sure I'd share this fancy term with uh, kindergarten kids in Sunday school. I'm not sure I'd share this term with deacons in a Southern Baptist church even, I don't know. But a fancy term is conceptual scheme. Oh, oh, I love that phrase. I try to use it every chance I get. Even when I'm pumping gas, I just say conceptual scheme all the time. Now that fancy language simply means a worldview is a pattern. It's an arrangement. It's a systematic ordering of ideas. A worldview, then, is a conceptual scheme or map by which we consciously or unconsciously 
place or fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and judge reality. Now, here's what your worldview will do for you and for your friends and your enemies. A worldview will influence the way you think about reality. It will have an obvious effect on the way you live. It will have an obvious effect on the system of values that you have, your ordering of values and priorities. Now, the philosophical systems of famous thinkers like Plato and Aristotle were worldviews. If you ever study Plato's philosophy, and of course we have a number of experts in Plato's philosophy here, Plato's philosophy was his worldview. So he had one. Aristotle had one. Antony Flew, the atheist British philosopher that we've already mentioned, has a worldview. Now, worldviews function a great deal like eyeglasses or spectacles. The right prescription eyeglasses can put everything into proper focus. This is a good example to use. Right now, I've taken my eyeglasses off and I'm looking down at a copy of the Bible and I truthfully can't make out one single word. That's how bad my eyes are. But when I pick up my trusty spectacles that have, of course, the correct prescription, and I put those eyeglasses on, what was unclear and unfocused suddenly becomes readable and intelligible. Now, that's what a worldview will do for people. Do you know people who are so messed up in their thinking that they don't know which end is up? They don't know the meaning of life. They'd like to know. They're often like these people who want to climb some mountain and talk to a guru and find out what the meaning of life is. You might, you might picture here Opus in the cartoon strips who's always looking for the meaning of life, as well as the guy who writes Doonesbury um, cartoon, who clearly doesn't know the meaning of life, all right? Now, people who are confused about life, who can't see the front from the end, the top from the bottom, who don't know what life is all about, those people are looking for another worldview. And if they can but find the correct worldview, it will do for them what the right prescription eyeglasses will do for any of us. But of course, if you put the wrong prescription eyeglasses on, you'll make things even worse. And if you don the wrong worldview, you'll make things even worse. Most of us know some people who have built-in grids that filter out information and arguments and that lead them to place some peculiar twist on what seems obvious to us. I've even known students in this seminary to, to disagree <laughs> with me, for example. This is the way a worldview works. Have you ever presented your best shot to somebody and found that person totally unimpressed by what you just shared with them? That's because their worldview had closed closed a door between them and their mind. And the truth, presumably what you had to share with them, couldn't get through. All right, now, what I'm going to do on the blackboard is draw some circles 
that illustrates some of the ways in which worldviews relate. Let's, I'm drawing two circles here that overlap. Let's, let's redraw that. Let's draw these two circles so that they have more in common than they, uh, than they do not. These are two overlapping worldviews that, that share quite a bit. This represents two worldviews that agree on more issues than they disagree with. This, 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 this pair of circles might represent, for example, two evangelical Christians who agree on the vast majority of issues but who disagree over uh, some political issue, let's say, or some scientific issue. But then, of course, <clears throat> now I've drawn two circles that have very little in common, even though they do overlap to a small extent. This would represent two people holding two worldviews that disagree more than they agree. Now, it is difficult to imagine any situation in which two moral, rational human beings could have worldviews that have nothing in common. Here we might have people, one who's a liberal, perhaps a humanist, one who's a Christian, let's say, and, uh, well, let's take as an example of one thing over which they agree. Let's say these are two people, and this might surprise you, who happen to agree about the sanctity of unborn human life. There are a few people in this country who are humanists, who are not Christians, but who are still pro-life. Uh, these are very interesting people to me. One of the things I often long to do is sit down with some people like this and show them how their respect for the unborn might not be philosophically grounded unless they come all the way over and accept a biblical or a theistic point of view. But then, of course, let's draw two circles on the board that have nothing in common at all. Here are two worldviews that are totally different. What are the major elements of a worldview? What I've told you is that everybody has a worldview. That is a set of beliefs held consciously or unconsciously about the most important issues in life. Whatever a person's worldview is, it's going to shape and influence the way that person thinks and the way that that person lives. And it is the presence of competing worldviews in the world of ideas that hinders or helps our communication with other people, our sharing the gospel with other people. Now, what are the major elements of a worldview? There are five that your textbook mentions. I think that your textbook gets to this subject in chapter two. Every worldview contains certain beliefs about God. Even if this worldview is, belongs to an atheist, that worldview contains beliefs about deity. Even if a person says, I do not believe in the existence of the Judeo-Christian God, he still has a theological belief operating there. So one of the first things you want to look at when you're contrasting your worldview as a Christian with that of other people is where you stand vis-a-vis -vis 
the nature and the existence of God. Not only do we disagree, not only do worldviews disagree with respect to the existence of God, they also disagree with respect to the nature of God. Christianity, of course, is a form of theism. We believe that God is a personal being, eternal, almighty, who created everything else that exists. Now, that view of God is, of course, not shared by pantheists. That would be a different worldview. Pantheism is a worldview that doesn't see any distinction between God and the world. And there are other, other ways of, of understanding and describing the relationship between God and the world. The second element of any worldview is what it teaches, what it believes about ultimate reality. Is the world eternal? Has the world always existed? Or did the world come into existence at a particular time as a result of the special creative activity of a personal, all-powerful God? That's a conflict between two worldviews. Is reality basically matter in motion? Materialism is an important part of anti-Christian, naturalistic worldviews. We as Christians believe, of course, that whether or not whatever beliefs we hold about the nature of matter, and that's a, that's a sticky philosophical subject, we recognize that there is immaterial reality. The human mind cannot be reduced to body. God cannot be reduced to body. So we recognize that reality is more than simply physical matter. A third element of any worldview is what people believe about knowledge. Is knowledge possible? Can we know? What is the role that uh, reason and experience play in our knowledge? Now, every one of us holds certain beliefs about this, about this particular dimension of a worldview. You really do. Because if you didn't, why, why are you here, for example? If you don't believe that knowledge is possible, that it's attainable. Fourthly, we hold certain beliefs about ethics about right and wrong. Are ethical standards relative, or are there absolute unchanging standards of value? Differences of opinion on that important set of issues helps uh, divide us into different worldviews. And then, fifthly, we all have beliefs about hum humanity, humankind. Is there life after death? Am I just a body? Or do human beings also possess a mind or a soul that will continue to exist after the death of the body? Am I free or am I determined? What is the role of free will and determinism with regard to human beings? All of these convictions, to the extent that we focus on them, are important elements of our worldview. Obviously, there are questions in here where even sincere Christians can disagree. Notice that no two Christian worldviews will ever be exactly alike. Uh, 
probably, because there will always be some issue or other over which we disagree. Maybe some of us are Calvinists. Maybe some of us are Arminians. Uh, we, we disagree over the issue of indeterminism or free will. Maybe we disagree over certain moral issues. Maybe some of you are even empiricists. Um, you know, that horrible disease that I've committed myself to expunging from the world. Now, what I'm going to do next is draw you a picture of the two major worldviews that compete in the Western world. The two major worldviews that compete in the Western world. And the first worldview that I'm going to talk about is called naturalism. Now, naturalism is very easy to diagram, to picture. All you have to do is draw a closed box. And what you do is you, draw, you, you write inside the box the word nature or natural order. And outside the box, you write the word nothing. Now listen to my description of this widely held, popular worldview called naturalism. Basic, this worldview is basic to Marxism. It is basic to secular humanism. It is basic to, to the typical atheist in this country, to the typical materialist. What this worldview says is this. If anything exists, it exists inside the box. Now, what does this box represent? And the answer is nature, the natural order. If anything happens inside the box, it must be caused by something else that exists inside the box. Anything. If you sneeze, if your stomach growls, if your nose begins to drip, I don't know why I'm thinking of all these gross things right now, but they all have a physical cause. They all have a natural explanation. They are all caused by something else that exists within the natural order. Indeed, the naturalist would say, if you even think you have an experience of God, which, of course, any naturalist would think is illusory, that too must have its cause within the box. You've gotten two wires in your brain crossed or something. Nothing exists outside the box. There is no God. And God, of course, can have nothing to do, since he doesn't exist, with anything that happens inside the natural order. The second worldview I'm going to draw can be called theism. I'm using a generic word here. Theism, again, is a worldview which says the existence of the world is brought about by an eternal all-powerful, personal God. As you know, there are th 
several major versions of theism in the world. Christianity is a form of theism, Judaism is a form of theism, and Islam, in most of its versions, is a form of theism. Now notice, here we have another box. Let's call this box the natural order. The first point to notice is that Christians have no disagreement with science. We don't have a different view of the natural order than a, than a, than a humanistic or a naturalistic scientist has. When our, when our radiator freezes over on a cold morning up north, we, we know the scientific laws that are operating there. When uh, we get hit by a coconut, when we walk underneath a, a coconut tree, we know about the law of gravity. The natural order is the same in both the Christian worldview, the theistic worldview, and the natural world, naturalistic worldview. But there are some differences. Notice that instead of the box being a closed box, it has an opening to it. Now let's also write something else. Let's write the word God outside the box. And now we're able to identify three major ways in which a theistic worldview differs from naturalism. Difference number one, God, in this worldview, God exists outside the box. The naturalist says outside the box there is nothing. Christianity says outside the box there is God. Difference number two, point one, God exists outside the box. Point two, God created the box. Any charismatic people here want to say amen to that? Praise the Lord. God created the box, all right? The box has not always existed. If it weren't for God's act of creation, the box never would have existed. You see, the box in this worldview is self-sufficient, it's self-explanatory, it's eternal. Here, the existence of the box depends upon God. So God exists outside the box, God created the box, and thirdly, God acts causally within the box. God performs miracles, he answers prayer. The box is not some kind of deistic order that goes on without attention and God's causal activity. God acts within the box. Now, these are two totally different worldviews. Next question. How do we choose among these worldviews? Well, I know the answers that some people give. Some people say, we make a blind leap of faith. Oh, <laughs> no, don't do that. Or <clears throat> some people would say, we choose the box that makes us feel better. Oh, don't do that. No, this business of choosing between worldviews is something for which we have clear-cut well-established criteria or tests. This is not a blind choice. This can be a rational, a well-grounded choice. 
And I'll tell you what we're going to show you before this course is over. We're going to try and show you that Christian theism commends itself to thinking men and women because of its rational superiority, because of its logical superiority, because of its philosophical superiority, that in any thinking person's choice between cruddy old naturalism and uh, blessed theism, the Christian, the Christian doesn't have to hang his head in shame in front of a, a humanist or a naturalist or a Marxist and say, I'm a Christian. The, the Christian can throw up his head, throw out his chest and his arms, and he can say, listen, not only am I a Christian, but I'm, I praise God that I have committed my heart and life to a God who has revealed himself in a system that is far superior rationally, philosophically, and intellectually to anything that you guys can offer in its place. There are three tests that we can apply to any worldview. These are widely recognized worldview tests that operate among non-Christian philosophers. Test number one, the test of reason. I'm just going to go ahead and forget the time, all right? I, I can't do it. <laughs> That's all right. The test of reason. The laws of logic. Now, <clears throat> once in a while, people walk on this campus who don't have a whole lot of respect for the law of non-contradiction and the laws of reason. That's all right. All right. The Lord will forgive you and help you if you trust him on that matter. What we need to realize is that Christianity is not a friend of irrationalism. We ought to understand the laws of logic and the law of non-contradiction because we have a marvelous aid and support from the laws of logic. Now, I'm going to skip any more about the law of the test of reason here because I'm going to give it more time a little bit later on. But the second test is the test of experience. Any worldview that commends itself to thinking men and women ought to satisfy the tests of logic, but it also ought to satisfy what we know about the world. But here, <clears throat> there are two tests of reason that we ought to specify. There is, the there is our experience of the outer world, and there is our experience of the inner world. Now, what I mean by the test of the outer world is that our worldview should fit comfortably, naturally, with everything that we know about the world outside of us. I once worked as an orderly in a hospital. Someday I'll give you some of my great experiences in that thing. But I remember one day I was looking over the charts of the patients, and I noticed that the religion of one patient was Christian science. And that puzzled me, of course, because Christian scientists don't believe that disease and pain and death are real. And so I asked the nurses at the station, what is a Christian scientist doing in the Rhode Island hospital? 
The story is not a pretty one, and I don't want to offend any of you, <laughs> although I will throughout the semester, I'm sure. <laughs> this poor lady, who was a Christian scientist, had contracted cancer. And her family and she tried to, quote, treat that cancer by taking her to Christian scientist practitioners who, in effect, said to her, there is no such thing as cancer, all right? And she dilly-dallied around until that cancer spread through her body, and the reason, and this gets gross, and I apologize, but it's the truth, the reason why she was in that hospital is because her flesh had begun to smell so badly the people in her house couldn't stand it, and so they put her in the hospital to get her, get her out of the house. See, there's no cancer, but they couldn't deny the odor of decaying flesh. Not very pleasant. But that's the way it is when you ignore the realities of life. Here is a worldview that doesn't fit naturally. It says, you know, that people don't die. Well, they do. I want a worldview that fits the world of experience. Don't ever let anybody fool you into thinking that Darwinism is an adequate worldview. It isn't. Because there is simply no empirical fossil evidence to support this fantastic claim that all of life has evolved from one-celled animals living in the sea. What, what a proper, thoughtful Christian response to evolution does is fit more adequately the fossil evidence, which is to say that we recognize that there, have, there has been development within certain compact and limited forms of life, but there isn't a shred of evidence of there being any development between those kinds of life or those forms of life. Well, what we, our worldview must conform with reason, it must conform with experience of the outer world, it must conform with our experience of the inner world. Now, what I mean by that is this. Does your worldview fit what you know about yourself when you look inside? Can it adequately explain human thinking, the processes of human reasoning? Can it explain our moral sense, our recognition that certain kinds of behavior are right and wrong? Can your worldview explain the phenomenon of guilt? There are worldviews out there that would say when a person feels guilty, that's an illusion, that's a sickness, that's a deviation. There's nothing really wrong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you don't have a very perceptive grasp of guilt, friend. Uh, love. Have you got a worldview that can explain adequately the love of a parent for his or her child? Can naturalism, this reductionist, materialistic system, possibly be, do justice to the moral life, to love, to spiritual um, quest, to guilt? It can't. If you hold to, to the most popular competitor to the Christian worldview in the West, you can't possibly do justice to what we all know about the world inside of us. And finally, the last test of any worldview is the test of practice. Now, the guy who did the most to draw people's attention to this was Francis Schaeffer. And here is Francis Schaeffer's point. 
I'm not doing too badly on time. If I can do this in 40 minutes, that's all right. Here's Schaefer's point. What good is a worldview if you cannot live it? And live it consistently. Why would anybody commit himself or herself to a, to a conceptual scheme that you cannot possibly live in your everyday life? If someone were a naturalist, a materialist, who believed that there were no absolute and unchanging standards of right and wrong, what kind of life would that person live? Now, I'm not asking what kind of person, what kind of life do those people live. Fortunately, most of them live very nice, decent lives. The question is, is the way they live consistent with the way they think? It isn't. And Francis Schaeffer made this point. Most people who hold to a non-Christian worldview cheat when it comes to the test of practice. They cheat because when they live their lives, they borrow elements of the Christian worldview, elements that are not consistent with the intellectual castle that they live in the rest of the time. Now, one of the things we're going to try and do the rest of the semester is over the next couple of weeks also what the subject of chapters 1 through 4 is, is to help you realize that Christianity can hold its own in the world of ideas. In fact, when you understand the world of ideas, the worldviews that are in the most serious difficulty are not Christianity, is not Christianity. They do not include Christianity. They are the other things that are out there. Do you, have you looked at the New Age movement? My goodness, you compare the New Age movement to these tests, and you would think that anybody who commits himself to that is certifiably nuts. This is a worldview, and all of its variations, that can't possibly test, pass the test of reason, because logic, their, their consciousness transcends human reason. Oh, listen. Don't, don't let your children date anybody who says that their human consciousness transcends the laws of reason, all right? Can their worldview do justice to our experience of the outer world or the inner world or to the test of experience? So, get, if, if any of you have these doubts or an inferiority complex about the intellectual adequacy of the Christian faith Give it up now, or allow us to try and answer your questions and give you some help in those matters. If all human thinking is conditioned, then we can never know the truth about anything. There must be certain things we can know that rise. We don't want to deny that some of our thinking is conditioned. Certainly it is. But we dare not suggest or admit that all of our thinking is because then we get trapped in skepticism and uh, we can never get out of that. Now these particular tests, uh, well what you're going to find me doing, for example, as we have more time, is defending the objectivity of the test of reason. I will be presenting you arguments 
perhaps in the last half hour today, why the test of reason has to rise above any kind of historic or cultural conditioning. All right, so watch for that. Uh, as for the test of experience or the test of practice, can you honestly imagine anybody who would, well, yeah, there are people who deny the relevance of experience, but look at the trouble they get into. Look at the mess they get into. I will agree that there are people who do not see that. For example, New Age, New Age followers. Uh, you can put this in your notes right now, and you can laminate it in plastic, and you can carry it next to your heart for the rest of your life. If you have a relative or friend who is involved in the New Age movement, you will never get to first base with that person until you get them to acknowledge the necessity and the universality of the law of non-contradiction. You might as well forget. If, if they won't concede that, uh, you might as well walk away and uh, spend your time with somebody else because you're going to be wasting your time talking to them. Uh, now, I think there are ways in which you can help even New Age people recognize that, yeah, this is rock bottom here, and if I'm going to be New Age, I'd better be a New Age rationalist. But neither can we dispute the fact that times come in some people's lives when they trade in the old worldview for a new worldview. Now, that's a very interesting experience. And one of the things we can learn from that experience is that none of us are ever completely conditioned by our worldview. Otherwise, we could never get free from an old worldview and, and, and adopt a new one. Example, Saul of Tarsus had a worldview in which Christianity was the enemy, the most vile enemy that could possibly exist in his world. And as you know, he gave himself to killing every Christian he could get his hands on. Now, what set of circumstances brought Saul of Tarsus to the point in his life where he said, this worldview is wrong? Well, in Saul's case, it was an inescapable experience with the risen Christ, which, of course, challenged a key principle of his old worldview, a principle that denied that Jesus was really the Messiah, the risen Son of God. So once that happened in Paul's case, he then... He not only became a Christian, but then, of course, he gradually became open to the new Christian worldview. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.